This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, we'll speak with reporter Alex Kane about the factors influencing a possible war with Iran. We'll hear from Ben West of the Wilderness Committee about the talks around the Northern Gateway Pipeline, and union rep and shop steward Doug Nesbitt explains the high-stakes game for labour as the lockout of workers at the Electromotive Diesel Plant in London goes into its third week. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of January 19th, 2012. Reactions abounded last week over Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver's claim that radical environmental groups are trying to hijack the review process of major projects such as the Northern Gateway Pipeline and derail Canada's economic growth. In his response, David Suzuki underscored the conservative approach of most environmentalist groups, perhaps to collapse the ideological distance between these groups and the Harper government. Affected First Nations groups say Oliver is targeting environmentalists in an effort to avoid discussing the real opposition of First Nations groups who live in the area and are strongly critical of the pipeline. As Canada's premiers met in Victoria this week to discuss changes to health care funding, it would seem Harper is intent on moving away from Canada's national health care system. Harper stated in an interview late last year that it is now up to the provinces to find solutions to securing the future of health care in Canada, further abdicating the federal government's responsibilities in health care. The Hill Times reports that one solution offered by Ottawa may be to replace existing cash transfers with tax credits, a system that only benefits those who initially have the money to access health care services. Two of the four U.S. Marines who appear in a video posted to YouTube of four Marines urinating on three Afghan corpses have been identified. The U.S. Marines have begun a criminal investigation on these actions that were described by Afghan President Hamid Karzai as, quote, inhuman and condemnable in the strongest possible terms, unquote. It is not known at the time of recording whether these Marines will face criminal charges. These actions are illegal under both the Geneva Convention, which restricts despoiling the dead, and U.S. military law. The barricades surrounding Zuccotti Park in Manhattan were removed last week after a complaint launched by the New York Civil Liberties Union argued the barricades infringed on citizens' right of freedom of assembly. More than 200 occupiers filled the park shortly after the removal of the barricades. The police arrested three people, charging them with trespassing and resisting arrest. The barricades were initially erected on November 15th, despite the mayor's comments that protesters were free to organize and demonstrate in the park. Union leaders in Nigeria called off a week-long strike on Monday after the country's president restored the fuel subsidies that originally prompted demonstrations, showdowns, and mass rallies. The protests began over fuel subsidies for Nigerians, but quickly turned into a larger critique of social and economic inequality 
and government corruption in the country. Nigeria's president, Goodluck Jonathan, ordered soldiers to take charge of security in many of the country's major cities in an effort to rid the streets of protesters and prevent further demonstrations from taking place. Protests in Romania that initially began over the government's plans to privatize health care have transformed into larger disputes over austerity measures. The Romanian president's announcement shortly after the first day of demonstrations that health care would not be privatized did nothing to quell the protests, with hundreds demonstrating over the weekend, demanding justice for the poor and working classes. Despite arrests and injuries, protests were continuing at the time of recording. Those are the alert headlines for the week of January 19, 2012. Now for Around the Left for the week of January 19, 2012. Controversial new science is raising suspicion that chemicals in the environment may be contributing to the global obesity epidemic by programming us to be fat. And it starts before we're even born. This is the subject of a new dream film documentary called Programmed to be Fat that was recently aired on CBC's The Nature of Things with David Suzuki on January 12th. It can be now be watched online by going to cbc.ca slash natureofthings and clicking episodes. The Ontario Federation of Labour invites you to join workers across Ontario to mobilize for a massive rally in London, Ontario on January 21st to oppose Electromotive Canada, a subsidiary of U.S. industrial giant Caterpillar Inc. Electromotive locked out workers at its London-based diesel train plant on New Year's Day after attempting to slash benefits and cut wages by over 50%, despite billion-dollar profits earned by Caterpillar in the last year. The London Day of Action to protest this attack on decent-paying Canadian jobs will begin at 11 a.m. at Victoria Park, Wellington Street at Dufferin Avenue. What does it mean to occupy already occupied lands? How does occupy relate to 500 years of resistance on Turtle Island? On January 23rd at 7 o'clock p.m., please join speakers Tom B.K. Goldtooth, Clayton Thomas Muller, and Leanne Simpson to explore and discuss these dynamics of the Occupy movement. Come to Beit Zatun at 612 Markham Street in Toronto. The Aboriginal Women Reclaiming Our Power Project, Moon Voices of Ganiganichik Inc., and the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Winnipeg are pleased to invite you to attend Moon Voices Speak, Reclaiming Our Power, Indigenous Women's Perspectives on Education. A panel of Indigenous women students and scholars will share their own stories and perspectives. Following that, Sharing Light Snacks will offer further opportunities to connect, network, and continue the discussion. This event will take place on January 25th from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. in Convocation Hall at the University of Winnipeg and is free and open to all. For more information, check out the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies, IWGS, on Facebook. On January 27th at 7 o'clock p.m., come to a talk titled Marginalization Doesn't Happen by Accident, Colonialism and Violence from the State. Speaker Jessica Yee takes up the question of why Indigenous women are five times more likely to die of violence than any other race of women in Canada and how this can be understood in light of state violence, inaction, and complicity. 
event is free, and it will take place in room 1400 of the Harbor Center at 515 West Hastings Street in Vancouver. Registration capacity is 100 people. On February 8th, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. in Ottawa, come to the Unlawful Access Legislation Forum, which will examine electronic surveillance laws and how they invade privacy. Taking place in the Amphitheater of St. Paul University, 223 Main Street, the event will feature the launch of the book The Internet Tree, The State of Telecom Policy in Canada 3.0, a viewing of a mini-documentary on these issues called Unlawful Access, and panels and discussions. For additional information on this event and a list of panelists, search out the Facebook event page. That's all for Around the Left for the week of January 19, 2012. The public hearings over the proposed Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline began on January 10th in Kitimat, B.C., The proposed pipeline will carry crude oil from the tar sands to Kitimat, where it will be transported to Asian markets by oil tankers. Conducted by the National Energy Board's Joint Review Panel, over 4,000 people and organizations have signed up to give testimony at these hearings. Strong opposition has come not only from environmental groups, but also from First Nations communities, whose traditional lands the proposed pipeline will run through. Here to discuss these hearings further is Ben West. He is the Healthy Communities Campaigner of the Wilderness Committee and based in Vancouver. Welcome to Alert Radio, Ben. Thank you. So to begin, can you give us a a bit of an outline of the process of these hearings for us? Well, um, for the next couple of months, what we're seeing is uh, is what's in, called interveners, um, basically people who've been given sort of legal status to uh, play an active and ongoing role in the uh, in the public hearings. Um, so this is mostly First Nations bands, municipalities, um, and some individuals who uh, have submitted you know some sort of expertise or perspective that's that's made them an official intervener. Um, so the actual public hearing part of these hearings, like the part where these 4,500 people have signed up to comment, um, that actually doesn't start till March. Uh, and we'll start in the northern communities first. Uh, it may be as late as November by the time it reaches some of the bigger cities like Vancouver and Victoria. Um, you know, so at this point, really, most of what uh, has been happening is um, uh, oral histories from First Nations elders uh, and, you know, some uh, input from from municipalities. Uh, and, you know, as of yet, it's almost been entirely like 100% opposition to the to the tankers, even from the interveners, not, not just from the members of the public. Um, and we're probably going to see much of the same uh, throughout this whole process. Of course, uh, all this could change in an instant if, uh, if the Prime Minister steps in and, and changes the process, as he's been threatening to do. Um, some have suggested that that would involve him having to actually amend the uh, Environmental Assessment Act, uh, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, because the um, the way that this is all happening is basically based on the stipulations of that le- of that legislation. But of course, with a majority government in Ottawa, uh, you know it's possible that he could actually change the act and then change the the nature of these consultations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the National Energy Board itself? What is its mandate? Who sits on it? Um, the National Energy Board is an interesting entity. Uh, you know, they, they are a government-appointed entity. Um, you know, it's people with expertise related to um, natural resource industries. Um, you know, their mandate is to, to sort of work on behalf of the public interest, although I would say the way that the public interest is sort of more broadly defined is 
basically picking between various different oil companies who all are sort of vying for uh, for contracts, um, you know, and, and other related sort of energy-related industries. But but largely, um, you know, what we're seeing that play out recently is in regards to, um, you know, to oil pipelines and gas pipelines and, and related projects. Of course, they do also weigh in on things like coal-fired power plants and stuff, which is less of an issue in, in uh, British Columbia where we don't have any of them. But uh, it is definitely a bigger issue other places in Canada, like in Alberta. Um, you know, so in terms of you know what role they play in all this, um, they they really do to me seem like an arbiter, uh, basically just negotiating amongst and between various different oil industry industry uh, you know interests. Uh, and often, what you see in these processes, the the ones that are a little bit less public, um, you know, is is basically just different oil companies vying for um, you know a stake or for sort of access to markets. Um, and the NEB kind of playing the role of deciding who gets what contracts, who gets permission to take on sort of what percentage of, of oil that's moving through a pipeline that's pre-existing, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there there are some concerns, of course, that are raised about, uh, you know, how impartial or not the NEB really is. Um, you know, and I, they seem to me to be a, a quasi-political entity at times. Uh, you know, just one example is they put out a press release um, Announcing a reduction in uh, in safety uh, concerns related to to pipeline accidents, um, you know, which was sort of an interesting way to frame an article that actually was telling us that there was more pipeline incidents last year than there had been in years previous. Um, you know, so they uh, definitely you know put out at least some form of sort of communication spin, uh, you know, in the in their releases, uh, you know, to sort of frame. An increase in incidents as a reduction in safety problems, uh, you know, seemed a little bit, um, you know, telling as to sort of how the the NEB is actually operating. In your opinion, do you think it's likely that the board will recommend against the pipeline? And even if it does, do you do you expect the Harper government to follow such a recommendation? Um, no, and no. <laughs> uh, I'd be pretty amazed if they if they didn't uh, support the pipeline ultimately or some other version of getting oil to the coast. Um, you know, it may be that they support some some variation on the pipeline. I mean, often what you see in these processes, um, to be fair, pretty much all environmental assessment processes is, uh, you know, as projects are rarely actually overturned, uh, often there's many, many conditions put on place. Sometimes the proponents will walk away because there are so many conditions and it's expensive. Um, or just that it seems like it'll be very difficult to proceed because clearly there's such a high level of opposition on the ground. Um, you know, and, and that is a possibility. If there was delays and further delays, you know, if the assessment takes even longer than they say that it's going to, um, you know, it becomes more and more difficult for a proponent to, to stick around, uh, especially when there's other companies with other projects vying to pick up the same contracts. And, and that's what we're seeing to a certain degree. Uh, on the West Coast is, uh, you know, Kinder Morgan, who has an existing pipeline that goes into Vancouver, uh, would would like to see this proposal go on as long as possible because that gives them the opportunity to make a case for increasing their pipeline capacity and moving more tankers through the Vancouver Harbor. Well, getting back to the hearings themselves, is there anyone or any group in particular whose testimony you're looking forward to hearing? Well, I mean, there's a great number of them, to be honest. Uh, I mean, already the stuff that uh, that is, is being said by many First Nations in the North is, um, you know, quite powerful. And it's a shame that so much of the focus has actually been, you know, on the role of environmental groups and American funders and all this kind of uh, stuff that I think is really largely focused on distracting us from what's actually being said at the hearings. Um, you know, the opposition from First Nations is... is um, 
unprecedented. In fact, there's an unbroken wall of opposition all the way from Alaska down to the United States coast where you know, folks are saying uh, you know, absolutely no to the export of oil through their traditional territories. Um, and you know, beyond that, I mean, this is uh, also a, uh, unprecedented for 4,500 people to sign up to speak at a hearing process like this. Um, you know, so really, I'm just uh, looking forward to being in some of those crowded rooms, surrounded by people who are fighting for, you know, justice and democracy. Um, you know, and it can be a pretty powerful thing to be in that kind of space. Uh, and I'm I, I'm quite eager to see the hearings taking place in uh, in some of the bigger cities where. You know, so many of these people have signed up to, to make sure that their voice is heard. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, but just as one final question, mm-hmm. uh, the Wilderness Committee, um, are they going to be presenting at the hearings? And if so, can you give us an idea of the content of their presentation? Well, uh, we actually didn't apply for intervener status, uh, but we will, many of our members and our uh, supporters and our staff are speaking as, as members of the public hearing process itself as, amongst those 4,500 people. Um, our role is largely going to be, um, you know, getting people out to the hearings, uh, making sure that people are aware of them and spreading information so that people are sort of informed and prepared. Um, you know, our focus will actually be somewhat on climate change. Uh, as much as we are concerned about um, an oil spill, um, you know, there's there's a lot being said about that already, and, and you know, we share a lot of those concerns. Uh, but we also think that it's it's fundamentally important that we look at this in the big picture in the context of, you know, we're one of the largest sources of fossil fuels that are, you know, causing climate change on planet Earth. Um, and, you know, these new pipelines, uh, you know, if not built, could actually act as, as major choke points uh, to actually stop the growth of, you know, one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases on planet Earth. Um, so, so I, for one, will be, will be focusing actually very much on, on our role sort of in a global community, uh, you know, either being the people who are profiting from causing climate change or, or, you know, part of a global community that's trying to do something about it. Well, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you, Ben, for being with us uh, to share your insights into this process. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Ben West, the Healthy Communities Campaigner of the Wilderness Committee based in Vancouver. A major challenge for organized labor is expressing itself in the city of London, Ontario. After the 700 unionized workers at the Electromotive Diesel Plant voted 97% in favor of strike action in response to owners' demands by the employer Progressive Progressive Rail, a subsidiary of Caterpillar Incorporated, the company responded with a lockout, which took effect on January 1st. To discuss this is Doug Nesbitt. Doug Nesbitt is co-chief steward of PSAC 901, representing Queen's University Teaching Assistants and Fellows, and he's also the co-host of Rank and File Radio, a weekly labor news program on CFRC 101.9 FM. He recently wrote an article called Canadian Labor at the Crossroads, addressing this subject. So, Doug, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So could you maybe just spell out uh, a little bit, uh, what were the specific uh, concerns that uh, the workers had with regard to uh, their employer? Well, like most people, I've been following the this dispute through the news, so everything I know is through uh, just meticulous reading of uh, the mainstream press, including the London Free Press, the local newspaper. And uh, basically, everything says that the, this is really about 
Caterpillar demanding a 50% wage cut. They want to eliminate pensions, and they want to cut benefits of the workers at EMB. And on top of that, there seems to be a lot of uh, rumors and, and some evidence that the company wants to close down the London factory and move its operations entirely to Indiana, where workers are paid far less. Mm. So if that is the case, then like why, why, why go through this uh, whole business of, uh, I mean, why not just relocate? I mean, why, why would you uh, go through the business of, trying, of making these sorts of demands? I guess it's with the expectation that uh, this sort of situation would arise, no? Yeah, yeah, you, I could only speculate on the motives of Caterpillar in placing these demands on the workers, because if they were really going to move the factory, they could probably just do that, and uh, there could just be immediate layoffs. But Caterpillar, their history, especially with the United Auto Workers in the United States, is particularly nasty. Uh, during the early 90s, they had major uh, struggles with uh, auto workers there. And I think Caterpillar is just one of those uh, vindictive sort of companies. I also think that um, it's a bit of a shot across the bow. There seems to be a political as well as in, well, it's a political content to the attack on these private sector workers. Because over the last few years, Canadian labor has focused the, the big issues have been around public sector workers like the Toronto Municipal Strike um, or the Canada Postal Lockout that just happened this past year. And I think in this case, um, it seems like the the attacks on unions is extending now uh, into, the, into the private sector, especially against, uh, I think uh, it's telling that it's against the auto workers um, that it's the largest private sector union in Canada, and it does have a tradition of uh, militancy and standing up to uh, unfair and unreasonable demands from employers. So I think that it, it's as much uh, probably driven by Caterpillar's own bottom line as well as uh, a kind of symbolic political attack on organized labor. But uh, I should clarify that you know, what their motives are uh, is from my perspective, speculation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, interesting to note. Uh, it does bear, it seems, a, a certain similarity. I mean, when you talk about this, uh, you, the, the level of um, the extent to which the, the demands that, that are being made by the employer, uh, not too long ago, as I alluded earlier, the Harper government had basically... Uh, legislated workers, people back to work, the uh, Canada Post workers back to work, uh, in spite of demands that were not really, I mean, they, they had rotating strikes, and uh, what Canada Post was effectively locked them out, essentially, right? So, yeah. you know, but on the other hand, I mean, that's, uh, the, here we're talking about totally private sector employer. So what, could how could the the Harper government... I mean, should it come to it? Uh, could they legislate them back to work? Or I think in this case, um, I think the non-intervention by the government is, in fact, it's it's a way of intervening in this strike. We did see last year the labor 
Minister uh, Lisa Raitt threatening back-to-work legislation against Air Canada flight attendants who were rejecting uh, the offer of uh, their employer. And Air Canada is privately owned, so we saw in that case the federal government stepping in to legislate the the flight attendants back to work. When it comes to what's happening in London, I think this is a case where, unlike the Air Canada uh, flight attendants, the workers at EMD don't play the same strategic role in the functioning of the Canadian economy. Uh, The Labour Minister explained and made this argument that the reason why private sector workers like flight attendants ought to be legislated back to work was because they were essential to the economy. And uh, those sorts of arguments, whether one agrees with them or not, and I certainly don't agree with uh, the fact that uh, if you're essential to the economy, you don't have any sort of collective bargaining rights or right to strike or anything like that. But I think in this case, the government is just going to be very happy to let uh, Caterpillar deal with uh, what's going on in London. And that, to me, is kind of why I wrote this article, is that um, Canadian labour does stand at a crossroads. Either we allow what, hap- what is happening in London to unfold, as we might predict if we don't do anything different, they will go down to defeat, and it will be demoralizing and uh, difficult to for the labour movement as a whole to kind of build up strength again, or we can change the tactics and try to make this strike um, uh, damaging, not simply to Caterpillar, but to the government as well on the political terrain. I think that this is becoming a political strike or can become a political strike or or labor uh, action as opposed to simply a question of economics. So given the stakes then, what uh, actions are you recommended be undertaken by uh, the uh, the workers at the plant and its various uh, uh, allies? Well, I think there's already been a great first step, which is the Ontario Federal, uh, excuse me, the Ontario Federation of Labor, the auto workers, and a whole bunch of other unions have come out in support of uh, the workers in London, and they're organizing a mass rally for January 21st. Now, one of the problems, however, is the Ontario Federation of Labour is moving the rally from the gates of the factory in East London to one of the main downtown park, which is eight kilometres away. So 10,000 people, as the OFL predicts, will show up and have a symbolic large rally downtown, as opposed to holding the rally at the picket lines. And... The reason I think that this is uh, a bit disappointing is that it it's not that uh, something more radical might happen on the picket lines that's being lost. It's that that opportunity is being abandoned uh, from the outset um, and moving towards the same old uh, symbolic rallies that we've had in the past. We're, we don't have a federal government that's going to listen to symbolic uh uh, rallies like this. Mm-hmm. The other, what we could be doing is carrying out uh, actions beyond just London, and I think that uh, organized labor can do this very easily, carrying out 
uh, pickets across Ontario and around Canada where Caterpillar has a number of companies who are renting their equipment. So every town in Ontario, uh, and I, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but uh, has place a place called Battlefield Equipment Rental where all of, all of Caterpillar's machinery is for uh, available for people to rent, and those places can be picketed. Um, and when it comes to the factory in London itself, uh, I think the question of an occupation really does need to be raised, and that's where gathering 10,000 people at the factory gates would be that sort of moment where you would have the numbers uh, to to basically break the law and go into the, the plant and take it over and really escalate and... and uh, throw the organized labor's weight around instead of uh, just hoping for a caterpillar to come around or hoping for the federal government to intervene on behalf of the unions. How realistic, really, how, sorry, how realistic is it that uh, that sort of action on occupation, which I, I see you, you recommend in your article, uh, mm-hmm. how, that it would actually take place? I mean, this is Canada after all, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's very hard to see how that would play out, and I can't, uh, I wouldn't know how that would play out, and ultimately it is up to the the locked out EMD workers, they're the ones who are going to have to do it, they're the ones who will have to bear the brunt of that sort of decision, more so than people like myself who are simply recommending the idea. Um, however, with what happened in Egypt last year and uh, Wisconsin and um, with the Occupy movement, I think that these sorts of tactics, as well as all the, po- the range of political issues that, they're, that these um, social protests have raised, whether political corruption or uh, corporate power, uh, environmental destruction, attacks on unions, all these issues um, could be highlighted by a more radical labor action like an occupation. And I think simply by raising the demand, even if it doesn't happen in London, simply by raising the demand now, I think we can start planting those seeds uh, amongst all sorts of people in Canada who, if this uh, lockout fails or if there are more labor disputes coming, that people will start to see maybe an occupation is... Uh, factory occupation or workplace occupation is a tactic that's feasible and could have uh, uh, significant public support. Okay, and, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but okay. uh, Doug, thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us on Alert. Great, thanks a lot. And I've been speaking with Doug Nesbitt. Uh, he is co-chief steward of uh, PSAC 901, representing Queen's University Teaching Assistants and Fellows, and the co-host of Rank and File Radio for CFRC 101.9 FM. (music) 32-year-old Mustafa Ahmadi Roshan became the fourth Iranian nuclear scientist in two years to be mysteriously assassinated. We've seen sanctions directed at the Iranian Central Bank over its supposed nuclear ambitions and threats by the Iranian government to shut down the Straits of Hormuz. Are we on the brink of war with this Middle Eastern power? For his analysis, Alert is joined on the line by Alex Kane. Alex Kane writes for Mondo East. He recently wrote an item examining the roles of Israel and Iran 
in the conflict. Thank you for having me on. This talk about Iran looking to build nuclear weapons and uh, Israel looking to try to uh, attack Iran uh, with some support from the United States. Uh, what is your assessment of, of the, the motivations behind this, uh, you know, all the talk we're hearing? Well, um, you know, in the past couple of weeks, there has been a real uh, ratcheting up of news media accounts of a potential Israeli or U.S. strike on Iran. Um, and, you know, it, this is not something new. Um, it seems like every so often, every couple of months, the Israeli news media is filled with leaks from, uh, you know, officials in the Israeli government that say, you know, next month could be the month that uh, Israel strikes Iran and, and, and so on. So, you know, one, you know, there's, there's a precedent to this type of uh, posturing um, between Iran and the U.S. and Iran and Israel. On the other hand, it does seem pretty different. Uh, you know, you had the U.S. and Iran really um, going, you know, kind of, the rhetoric was, was ratcheting up in, on, the, on the straits, about the straits of Hormuz, and, and you had Israel come in, and there was a lot of kind of leaks in the media that Israel might be preparing for an attack, and the U.S. was saying, you know, um, that 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 the the attack should not happen, and and so on. Um, so we're really in a what seems like an unprecedented situation, and I think also um, pushing uh, the situation further is the implementation of new sanctions on the Iranian Central Bank that the Obama administration uh, has been in a way forced to implement because of. Um, lobbying inside of the United States. So, you know, it seems that we're on a very dangerous track right now. Hmm. Now, what are the, you mentioned the sanctions. Uh, are, are these sanctions uh, having much of an impact as far as we can tell? Well, I'm referring to the new sanctions imposed on the Iranian Central Bank. Um, and, and these were sanctions that were really championed by um, the Israel lobby in the United States the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, they were the, the organization, they're a very obviously powerful organization in Washington, D.C., that was pushing these sanctions. Um, and with the sanctions essentially put President Obama in a very tough box. Their effect, well, the immediate effect has been, as I mentioned earlier, the um, increase in tensions in the Persian Gulf, specifically about the Straits of Hormuz, because after... Um, the, the sanctions were signed by President Obama as part of uh, a defense authorization bill. Iran threatened to, to close the Straits of Hormuz, um, and, and that really uh, sparked this, this set of, uh, of tensions. Now, the, the sanctions, there's kind of a uh, six-month, uh, 180 days waiting time um, where President Obama you know, will assess the sanctions and will assess countries um, that do business with Iranian oil, their compliance with the sanctions. So at the moment, uh, we can't say that the sanctions are going to collapse the Iranian economy or will, you know, do big damage, but we have seen the Iranian currency, the real, also drop in value. So there has been some uh, economic effect, not anything that we can say definitively right now, but the sanctions have clearly contributed to a, a ratcheting up the tensions between Iran and the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, what about the death of this uh, uh, nuclear scientist? Uh, what uh, evidence is there that this was uh, instigated by uh, an Israeli or, or possibly even American covert um, action? Well, you know, the, 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 the assassination of the Iranian scientist is, um, is something that, you know, I think it's going to be very hard to have definitive, definitive, you know, no doubt evidence that, you know, the Israeli Mossad was behind it or the American CIA. Um, but, you know, there have been numerous reports in, in various media outlets over the past couple of days that have pointed to uh, the Israeli Mossad. And the U.S., which, it, you know, in, in a move that was seen by some, by some analysts as something new, came out and categorically said that they denied, you know, they denied having to have it, they, they denied uh, carrying out the assassination, uh, and they deny having anything to do with it or, or coordinating with Israel. So, and, and Time Magazine and the Sunday Times have published accounts that point to the Israeli Mossad as being behind the attack. And remember, you know, this is not the first assassination of an Iranian nuclear scientist. A number have been killed uh, in the past couple of years as the tensions of the Iranian nuclear program have, have increased. Um, so my take would be that it was probably the Israeli Mossad. I, I don't have any, you know, inside information or, or sources that would, uh, you know, kind of confirm that or not confirm that for me, but that's what it, it seems. Uh, and, and whether the U.S. has a role is, is unclear, I think, right now. Mm. So I, I, this whole situation is definitely reminds us of the, the lead-up to the, the war in Iraq, where similarly there were concerns about uh, nuclear weapons of mass destruction, and, and it seems like Groundhog's Day all over again. Iran was mentioned as one of those uh, access of evil powers by uh, former President Bush. Um, is there any, and, and as we saw with Iraq, that, that turned out not to be the case. And in the case of Iran, I, I guess, do, do you have any sense of, of like the, the real aim if, you know, if, if we were, uh, somehow, uh, misled about the, the, the real rationale for the war in Iraq? Might there be a, another rationale for the war in Iran besides uh, concerns over nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear weapons manufacturing? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the number one reason why U.S. politicians, for example, um, are so concerned about Iran is because the threat that Iran poses to Israel. Um, and indeed, I would say that Iran does pose a threat to Israel, not in the traditional way they hear where, you know, Iran sponsors so-called terrorism and um, destabilizes the region. I think... You know, Iran is a big country, has a large population, historically significant challenges Israeli regional hegemony. And, you know, the, the fact is that Iran and Israel have been in this kind of cold, hot dance where, you know, Israel has cultivated Iranian opposition groups to carry out attacks inside Iran, or, or even Pakistani groups, like the recent report by Mark Perry uh, pointed out. Um, and, 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 and so that, that's what's, what's going on here. Okay. Now, um, so should this, uh, should, should we see an attack in the next uh, few months? Uh, what, what would, uh, ultimately be the cost of, uh, you know, to, well, not just to the Iranians, but to, uh, 
to Israel, to the United States, and, and to the region? Well, you know, what's, what's interesting and what's related to that question is that the U.S. and Israel recently um, called off joint joint defense drill that was set to, to take place in, in Israel very soon. And one of the reasons cited, although, again, you know, there, there are a lot of rumors going around about this and leaks about why exactly the Israeli military and, and U.S. military canceled the drill together. Uh, one of the reasons cited uh, by, by officials is that the fact that U.S. troops would be on the ground then would mean that Israel would not strike Iran. So there was a fear among American officials, and this is based on uh, Laura Rosen's reporting, who's at Yahoo News, there was a fear that having American troops, there was an Israeli fear that having American troops in Israel would deter them from carrying out an Iranian attack in the next couple of months, because if um, American troops, you know, are on the ground in Israel, well, they would be a target. And and that, you know, larger question of what the consequences and costs would be of an Israeli attack on Iran or U.S. attack on Iran, well, one, you know, the oil market would, would oil markets would really go haywire, and um, probably the, the price of oil price of gas in the U.S. would really jump up. Uh, secondly, Iran would certainly retaliate. Um, you know, they're not going to take a strike on uh, their, their nuclear program lightly. And they would certainly probably attack Israel. There are, you know, who really knows what exactly would happen, but you would guess that Hezbollah and perhaps Hamas would defend their benefactor. Israel would then respond. It really could... Uh, uh, sort of be the spark that lights up another war in the Middle East. And it's very dangerous to the economy, very dangerous for the people of Iran, and I think as well for the Americans and Israelis. Well, Alex, uh, we really appreciate that analysis. Uh, thank you for sharing those views with us uh, at Alert. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. And uh, Alert's been speaking with Alex Kane. He is a staff reporter for Mondo Weiss. Hi, this is Mitch Panolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And this week we're going to explore once again one of my favorite things to explore, which is songs that originate in the mind. Somehow the fascination of this and the imagination of this and the beautiful writing that's been done for the last 40 and 50 and 60 years by folk writers and by just miners has left us with this amazing, amazing legacy of great songs. Here's a song that's a classic song written by Merle Travis and performed by the country gentleman. Here is Dark as a Dungeon. Sun never 
blackened and turned into coal. I'll take a look from my heavenly home and steady the miners a dig in my bones. It's dark as a
baby starved and cried. Now she works in an old beer jar and hustles on the side. Oh, there ain't no way out, boys, ain't no way out. Well, I'm starting to get an old dry cough and my nails is a turning blue. I guess that damned old miner shack is a gonna get me too. Oh, there ain't no way out, boys, there ain't no was the new Lost City Ramblers with Miner's Lament and before that the country gentleman with Merle Travis's Dark as a Dungeon. Next we're going to hear from the Oyster Band. Oyster Band is one of the major folk bands in Britain and they're very political guys and they're very class conscious guys and here are two great songs, Cold Not Dole followed by The Bells of Rimney. It stands so proud though we'll so still a ghost-like figure on the hill It seems so strange there is no sound Now there are no men underground What will become of this petty When men once trampled faces hard Tired and weary, their shift done, never having seen the sun. Will it become a sacred ground, foreign tourists gazing round, asking if man once worked here? Empty trucks once filled with coal Lined up like men on the door Will they ever be used again? Or left the scrap just like the man? There'll always be a happy hour for those with the money, jobs, and power They'll never realize the hurt They cause to men they treat like dirt
was the Oyster Band with the Bells Rimney and before that Cold Not Dough and that's it for this week folks. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on Ravel.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Michael Welch. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.
Est-ce que ça va